Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I'm Carson Messersmith. Oh, it's been a while, Carson. It has been a bit. Oh, it's my fault. A little interlude. A little life <laughs> interlude, we call hey, that. Hey, let's have some life and uh, get busy and have January. January stinks anyway. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was there were a few opinions that were worth reading if uh, anybody wants to go back. Uh, oh, I'm maybe, not talking... Maybe we'll do a random one, but... Yeah, maybe. I'm not talking legally. I'm talking universally. Yeah. Yeah, just life in general. It's not good in January. 24, 24 just snuck up on us. And, and by 24, I mean 2024. Yeah. Uh, you know, it just seemed like it came in like a freight train. You know, there was no lull in between... 2023 and 2024 it was just a, a straight up smack in the face welcome to a new year don't slow down pedal yeah. to the metal yeah and and who needs to see the sun for 30 days no that's yeah that's joke. unnecessary yeah. yeah and although we did get to enjoy some of the uh beautiful nebraska you know go from negative 20 to 60 degrees in a 10 day span so that was kind of fun we enjoyed that yeah, but. just it's a jolt on your system yeah, I but know. the sun is shining today birds are chirping and we're back it's so. beautiful let's hear let's start with an ex parte summary carson go ahead okay first case we come to is and sorry i have the opinion i have pulled up has the long name griffith versus lg chem america and the ex parte on this will be uh, minimum contacts and let's say civil procedure. Okay, I have Catherine uh, Wright versus Southwest Airlines and the Nebraska Department of Labor. The ex parte is culture committee misconduct. No bennies. I like that's a no bennies. No bennies. Okay. All right, good. Right ahead. Go into the uh, Nebraska Supreme Court. Go ahead, Carson. Yeah, so we jump right in, and the reason I uh, stumbled through the title of this opinion was I was sitting here staring at the case, and we have about 10 parties, so this is uh, an interesting case. The reason I I start that off with this is a Civ Pro case because this kind of reads like a civil procedure case. I guess, uh, law review article or, you know, this is going to be something that I'm guessing uh, Lenich is going to take and plug right into his book because we have all kinds of civil procedure issues. And uh, when I say civil procedure issues, we have issues in regards to jurisdiction and then we have issues in regards uh, to uh, choice of law provisions and all kinds of fun things. But the basis of this case, which is uh, a little bit interesting, is that Mr. Uh, Griffith had purchased two lithium-ion rechargeable batteries at Shoemaker's Shell Travel Station in Lincoln, Nebraska. And then several months later, when he goes to put these uh, batteries into, uh, I believe, a, a e-cigarette or a, a vape of some sort, the batteries explode and cause terrible bo- burns to Mr. Griffith. Uh, and this, the the burns and the explosion actually happen in Pennsylvania. And so, therefore, uh, we all of a sudden have this very unique case uh, that arises with lots and lots of parties. So Griffith has these two battery cells. They explode. They burn him, um, and eventually a lawsuit is filed uh, in the district court for Lancaster County. And what starts to kind of make this uh, case unique beyond uh, just all the all of the parties and the fact that you know basically we're suing everyone who is involved or could have potentially touched these batteries, and then also the the gas station and everything else is that the uh, lawsuit is being argued that it is not timely under Pennsylvania's two-year statute of limitations for personal injury actions versus Nebraska's four-year statute of limitations for personal injury actions. And so 
were kind of fighting uh, over uh, the issue of whether or not there should have been uh, summary judgment on that two-year statute of limitations. And so uh, we have a conflict of laws here, and the Supreme Court goes through uh, the analysis of when you have uh, an actual conflict of laws and then which uh, law applies. And so here they found that the district court did appropriately apply Pennsylvania law because the injury uh, there was an actual conflict in the laws and then the injury arose in Pennsylvania. And so when uh, they look at that most significant relationship test, pulling back to everyone with 1L uh, civil procedure, that most significant relationship test weighed out that uh, the most significant relationship existed with Pennsylvania. And so therefore, uh, Pennsylvania law applied and that two-year statute of limitations uh, had uh, been uh, breached. And so there was no uh, cause of action as far as negligence goes. And so then we deal with the uh, motion to dismiss this LGCAI uh, for lack of personal jurisdiction. And this, uh, as best I can understand, is essentially the, di the distribution for the batteries. And what was interesting here with this LCGAI company is that they had contacts with the state of Nebraska, but they were in regards to a different product, not just the batteries. And so um, we, again, get all the buzzword civil procedure language, basically whether or not uh, CGAI or I'm probably LC, LGCAI uh, would have uh, had sufficient contacts that they would have reasonably or could have reasonably expected to be hailed into court in Nebraska. And essentially what the record uh, demonstrates is that they had not uh, contracted with any Nebraska businesses for the sales of these batteries, these 18 650 batteries for e-cigarettes or vaping devices or any of the like. And so essentially the, the Supreme Court comes to the same conclusion that the district court did, which was uh, that these contacts were not sufficient enough uh, to avail uh, the company of uh, reasonably expecting to be hailed into a Nebraska court. Um, and so therefore they found that the district court did not have uh, personal jurisdiction over this company and uh, affirmed the granting of summary judgment on that issue. And so in totality, uh, they affirmed on all of those issues. But again, if you have a civil procedure case and we see a few of these come up every now and then, especially with products liability, or you have foreign companies and issues of service, and then especially that conflict of laws provision, I always think that's an interesting one, especially when you have a, a shortening of a statute of limitations, you know, very useful opinion for that. Uh, again, kind of reads like a law review article on civil procedure. And I'm sure, again, Lenich will be uh, plucking out all kinds of goodies here for his uh, civil practice manual. Uh, but a great opinion if you have a products liability case or a conflict of laws issue. Yeah, I mean, you're mentioning that. I, I flashed back, I think, to first semester Civ Pro. That was pretty much every buzzword you just mentioned. I know, just all of them. <laughs> I, they just came back and I, I broke out in sweat. And then here we are. <laughs> here we are. Um, I have this uh, Catherine Wright versus Southwest Airlines in the Nebraska Department of Labor. Uh, Ms. Wright was an employee with Southwest Airlines. Uh, she was a customer service agent and um, also served in a volunteer, volunteer role with the court, uh, Culture Committee. And this was a workplace social committee that was to... Um, they would go on trainings and they would try and keep morale up. They would have Christmas parties. They would have other snacks and things to get everybody together. And, and as part of the culture committee, you got a bank card. 
And uh, Ms. Wright was terminated from her employment for failing to keep adequate records in regards to that bank card and for using the bank card for personal benefits or personal purposes. She ended up applying for unemployment benefits and the original Department of Labor adjudicator actually agreed and gave her unemployment benefits for, I think, 14 weeks. Uh, that was appealed to a tribunal by Southwest, and uh, the tribunal um, said no, no benefits. And then that was ultimately um, affirmed uh, in the, the affirmance of the denial from the tribunal was in the district court. And um, the uh, appeal then went up to the Court of Appeals and, and then the Nebraska Supreme Court plucked it out. So here we are. Um, the, it was misconduct related to her work. That was the question. Um, the ultimate issue here is, was the misconduct that she did, uh, was it related to her work? And the allegations summed up by the tribunal and, and the record indicate that here, uh, she had a card for Southwest that she could use for this culture committee. And she went to Sam's Club to get some stuff and she renewed her personal membership to Sam's Club on that card. And then another time she spent, I think, $60 or something in groceries. And the allegation here, or the uh, position of Ms. Wright, is that that was an accident. I didn't mean to do that, and I provided the receipts. Sorry, it's not misconduct. And even if you consider it misconduct, it wasn't in the scope of my employment because what I was doing was I was using funds that were gained by um, contributions through the uh, uh, Southwest employees, not from Southwest directly. So that's the argument, um, the uh, ultimate uh, determination here. And I think why, probably why the Nebraska Supreme Court picked it up here is the misconduct from the um, standard of re review for misconduct is established as a mixed question of law and fact. This is the case for that. This says to, in order to look at misconduct, what they're going to look at, the standard of review for looking at misconduct is going to be a mixed question of law and fact. So some of the facts they're going to take um, from the lower courts and what they found, and then some of some things are going to be questions of law that they're going to have to make a determination on. There's no statutory definition of uh, what's connected to an employee's work, and because there's no statutory definition here, they actually ended up um, affirming the district court uh, didn't have any re reason not to affirm the district court. And that is the end of Catherine Wright and her unemployment benefits at this stage and her involvement with the Southwest Airlines Culture Committee. Okay, I think that's it for the Supreme Court. Yeah, Court of Appeals. All right, so we jump straight into the Court of Appeals and we start with N. Ray Estate of uh, Jeffers. And this is a published opinion from the Court of Appeals. And you know, we, we constantly hear, and, and this seems to be one of those cases that, that tough facts make uh, tough cases. And so here we have some interesting facts. Um, and, and basically what we have here is an appeal from a uh, construction of a will. And what happens is that uh, Jeffers had been married to uh, Virginia for approximately 30 years, and together they had had four children. Virginia dies in 2009. In 2018, uh, Mr. Jeffers executes his last will and testament, and then in um, and that was uh, June of 2018. And in July of 2019, 13 months after executing this will, he learns that he had another biological child. 
who was born in California sometime around 1952 to one of his former girlfriends. Um, and so DNA testing proves that he was uh, Sumi's biological father. Uh, Sumi travels to Nebraska in July of 2019 and stays with him for about a week before returning to California uh, and then never returns uh, to Nebraska after that. And so uh, Jeffers dies on July 23rd of 2020. And then to add one more complication, Sumi dies a year later in July of 2021. And so then on uh, February 16th of 2022, uh, the appellants, who in this case are the uh, children, file a petition for formal probate of the will, a determination of heirs, and to construe the will. Um, and in this petition, they acknowledge that Sumi was a child of Jeffers and that was one of his heirs at law, uh, but asserted that the appellants, the children, were the sole devisees under the will. And so basically the entire will is in in this opinion, I'm not going to go through and read all of it, uh, but kind of the relevant portions are that uh, he devises all of his um, estate to his children. And, and the language that he uses there is, I declare that I am currently unmarried and I have four children now living, namely uh, Michael, Sandra, Britton, and Laura. Um, and basically he, he um, refers to them that all references in this will to my child or children are to my named children and to any child or children born or adopted to adopted by me after the execution of this will and all children of mine shall share equally under the provisions of this will as though they had been named above. And then in a, a later um, issue, he leaves all of his uh, rest and uh, residue, so all the remainder of his estate in equal shares to his children. And so the whole issue of this case is basically uh, how do we construe children? And so uh, there is a jurisdictional issue in this case, and, and the reason it becomes a jurisdictional issue is that the court initially finds um, that Sumi is an heir uh, under um, Nebraska law, which is correct. Sumi as a child would be technically an intestate heir, and there is no appeal from that. And over 30 days passes, and then there's a determination by the court again as to what is an heir under the will. And what the Court of Appeals says here is that basically the county court mistaking, mistaking, mistakenly said heir and not devisee, meaning a devise under the will. And so because of that error, uh, the court in its second order was essentially saying who was entitled to the property as a devisee under a will. And so therefore, that actually was the appealable order. And so there was a correct appeal here. But there is an interesting jurisdictional issue as to when uh, the 30 days had ran and what needed to be appealed. But the Court of Appeals finds that they did have jurisdiction. The county court uh, construes the will to find that Sumi uh, was a child and was therefore covered under the will and so therefore should be entitled to a share of the will. And so then we get into an interesting discussion from the Court of Appeals as to what is uh, basically whether this is a patent ambiguity or a latent ambiguity. And if there is an ambiguity, you know, how do we reconcile those? And so I would encourage anyone who is trying to construe uh, a will or any kind of, you know, testamentary document, this is an opinion for you. This is an opinion to go look at and to look at how to construe this. And basically what the Court of Appeals finds is that Jeffers' will was unambiguous um, and that this matter was distinguishable from the uh, case that was cited by both parties in as to what... Um, children meant and how to deal with the ambiguity. 
And what the Court of Appeals finds is that using the definition definitions in Article 2, which is the article that I read, and then in Article 7, which again d- discusses children, they found that that unambiguously uh, distributed the property in equal portions to his surviving named children and then only to any surviving children that would have been born or ad- adopted by him after the execution of the will. And so therefore they find that Sumi was not a named child and was not an afterborn child. And so therefore they found that Sumi was not covered uh, by Mr. Jeffers will. And so therefore they reverse and remand uh, with those instructions to the county court. Um, But again, kind of one of these opinions that sometimes can get tucked away in the Court of Appeals. Uh, I I think it's a valuable opinion to look at. I think it'll probably be cited when you start to look at these patent and latent ambiguities and um, how you go about construing uh, testamentary devices and especially wills or, you know, even potentially trusts. And so um, uh, an opinion that if you have any kind of an issue and if you practice in the uh, probate or transactional practice, probably one you want to take a, a glance at and maybe one that you uh, carefully look at for drafting those documents as much as dealing with litigation issues uh, related to your estate planning. So valuable little opinion there. Yeah, that one was interesting. Here we have in Ray adoption of Shaylin V., V. Eric S. This is an adoption case out of Platte County. Eric is the bio dad. The child was adopted by the child's stepfather. Um, They alleged abandonment on behalf of Eric, the biological father, and they provided Eric with published notice of adoption uh, after efforts were made to serve him in in person. Notably here, there was a district court case, uh, and the um, petitioners for the adoption did not receive a consent from the district court for the adoption proceedings to move forward. So the adoption moves forward uh, in spite of that consent uh, not being present, and 12 days after the adoption decree was issued, Eric files an application to set aside the decree. He claims that the uh, district court consent, uh, failure of the district court to provide consent to the adoption um, should cause uh, the reason to be set aside, and he was within the two-year statute of limitations. Um, So one day, this gets scheduled for hearing. They file a motion to dismiss the adoptive parents, the adoptive stepfather, and and the mother. They file a motion to dismiss uh, the application, and then the court views it as a motion to set aside. And one day before the hearing is supposed to occur, this evidentiary hearing, the county court issues an order dismissing the uh, motion of the biological father and says that it sounds in equity because it's a motion to set aside. um, And then therefore they have no jurisdiction in equity uh, because it's a county court and then Eric appeals. Section 43-116 permits a set-aside challenge to adoption decrees within two years, specifically under the statute. The Court of Appeals here says that the trial court had jurisdiction and reverses uh, the case and remands it for an evidentiary hearing on Eric's motion on whether the adoption should be set set aside. So, you know, I'm always reminded of uh, statute of limitations. It's always a pleasant reminder <laughs> to know about them. And here I was reminded that there's a two-year statute of uh, limitations at the end of adoption decrees. Um, so if you have somebody who wants to challenge an adoption, um, you got two years 
and if you are you know uh, if you are nervous sometimes uh, then two years is all they got so that's good too and ultimately the uh, they were reversed and remanded for an evidentiary hearing and that is in right adoption of Shaylin. Okay, next case we come to is N. Ray Interest of Dalton J. and Samuel L. This is an appeal from the County Court of Dodge County from a termination of parental rights. And essentially what happens here is the children are initially taken by HHS in 2019 uh, when the mother, Shelly, was um, intoxicated with one of the children in the vehicle and was involved in a car accident, was arrested on DUI. The children, and this one's kind of interesting, the children are eventually reunified in 2021. Uh, because mom had shown uh, markable improvements in her life. However, uh, after the children are reunified, uh, there are uh, another couple of uh, reports and then actual arrests and charges relating to other uh, alcohol offenses and then uh, potentially having a firearm uh, while she was um, intoxicated. And so then there's a termination. Uh, the first grounds is the uh, 15 out of 22 months. And then the big issue is the best interest. And there's tons of facts, uh, testimony from family support workers, visitation workers, counselors, um, and and the, um, the uh, parent herself. Uh, she testified at the hearing. And basically what the Court of Appeals comes to here is that uh, even though um, – there were, you know, just certain issues and behavioral problems with the mother, and those might not have been uh, reason for termination alone uh, when combined with all of the other decisions that uh, mom had continued to make and then her inability to cease drinking and driving and having these law violations uh, that it was in the uh, children's best interest to terminate her parental rights, and the uh, decision of the county court was affirmed. This will be a quick one. State v. Collins. This is a uh, individual here. Mr. Collins was convicted of third-degree assault on an officer, and he was found to be an habitual criminal. He was sentenced to uh, 10 to 60 years, I believe, um, <coughs> incarceration. And um, he has a history of mental illness. <coughs> he was in his brother's house, and he uh, involved in an altercation with his brother. He refused to leave, and law enforcement arrived. Uh, upon the uh, in arrival of the law enforcement, he was clearly having some kind of mental health episode, and he assaulted the officers upon the removal. He, he claimed that he was being choked and that he uh, reacted to being choked uh, by assaulting one of the officers. We have motions to suppress. We have a jury trial. Um, ultimately, the jury convicted him on one count, and uh, dismissed uh, or didn't convict him, acquitted him on the other count. And the Court of Appeals here looks at the uh, motion to suppress. There were some statements about biting an officer that uh, weren't technically uh, raised at the trial court level and didn't need to be and weren't preserved, uh, so they couldn't look at it. And then regardless of the lawfulness of arrest, an actor cannot resist arrest. Um, So therefore, it doesn't matter whether the they had probable cause to be there or probable cause to arrest him. You can't resist arrest. So um, his convictions and his sentence were ultimately affirmed. Okay, next case we come to is Durfelt versus uh, Hamilton and basic Ploger and Hamilton. And basically the issue here is uh, in regards 
to a partition of property and then a sale of property. And the underlying issue is whether or not there was undue influence uh, on one of the pro- parties in uh, selling her property and then um, in the uh, subsequent partition action. And so it's, it's pretty fact-heavy uh, because of those issues of undue influence. And basically, uh, whether or not there was undue influence here, and there was uh, a fair amount of deposition testimony that was taken. Um, and so, again, if you read this opinion, it's it's interesting to go through and, and look at the evidence as far as what was presented and trying to meet those undue influence elements. Uh, but basically, the conclusion that the district court had came to and uh, that the Court of Appeals affirmed was the fact that uh, there was no genuine dispute of material uh, fact as to uh, a couple of the elements of undue influence and the fact that the uh, appellants could not meet their burden as to those elements, even with the testimony uh, through the deposition. And so uh, they had argued on appeal that they should have gotten the opportunity to go through discovery and obtain medical evidence relating to basically the capacity issue uh, of the individual who was uh, at issue in this case. And essentially what the the district court had found and the court of appeals agreed was that uh, that may have been an issue, but it was an, only an issue as to one of the elements of undue influence. And because there was no dispute on two of the other elements of undue influence, uh, there basically uh, was no issue in granting summary judgment because uh, the appellants had failed to meet their burden uh, on those issues. But if you have a case that deals with undue influence, you're wondering about those elements, wondering about how to meet those elements. Um, and I should say there's four elements. But uh, anyway, if you're if you're having an issue with um, undue influence, what you need to prove, the burden of proof there, and then you know potentially what you need to uh, have a motion for summary judgment granted, or in the alternative, you know, what you need to meet as far as a burden in making sure that summary judgment isn't granted against you, uh, pretty valuable opinion for that and some of the evidence that you may need to put on. Uh, but the Court of Appeals affirmed the district court's granting of summary judgment. All right. Final case here from the Court of Appeals is uh, Tunnink versus Continental Fire Sprinkler Company. It's a work comp case. In 2019, uh, Mr. Tunnink was injured in his right foot uh, in a glass door situation. And the uh, comp court found that the employer, Continental Fire Sprinkler, uh, their benefits should be applied to him. Uh, They also, interestingly, ordered for them to pay for his medication for anxiety and depression. The question is whether the uh, injury was related to his work Um, and related to the work accident, or was it related to his diabetes or some other uh, injury that may not be related to his work, and whether the um, comp court should have ordered the uh, benefits of medication and anxiety depression be paid for him. The Nebraska Court of Appeals says the order of uh, benefits for his right foot was not, quote, clearly wrong, However, the med pay for anxiety and depression was not found in the evidence. And I think there's um, pretty clear statements on the record here, at least in, expressed in this order, that the comp court didn't have, uh, I think, anything to hang its hat on, it said, uh, as far as that, but it ended up ordering it anyway. So it's reversed on that issue as to the um, anxiety and depression medication. And there was a voc rehab award as well, but that was vacated uh, because... 
shortly after the decision um, in the uh, the award was issued, uh, the individual here died. So the uh, Voc Rehab uh, Award is mooted. But it does go back to see whether the um, medical payments for the anxiety and depression should continue. And there may be some other uh, issues related to that on remand as well. So I think that's it. Uh, the uh, right foot thing was affirmed, but the uh, reversed uh, on the other issue. And so that's that's where we're at. I think that's it. I think that's it. I think that's all the opinions. Oh, man. It's nice to be back. It is nice to be back. I'm sorry for everyone who missed us. Hopefully you did not leave us and have returned. You know, a little bird told me that absence makes the heart grow fonder. Oh, that's true. I have heard that. Maybe that's true. I, that is true. Maybe. Uh, I don't know. We're off to a big weekend. Do you have any predictions for the final football game uh, yeah. for the next... I think, five months. I think Chiefs pull it off. I think that's a. I think that's a good pick. I, I. I do too. I think there'll be a lot of people in the Midwest rooting for that outcome, and you know that. I bet the, there will be a lot of people turning in, tuning into this Super Bowl just because of you know headlines and potentially a certain pop star that you know may or may not make a flight from Japan or something like that. <laughs> the the will they or won't they factor? Yeah, I think is is gonna drive up numbers i would agree i think it will probably be one of the most viewed i know that the super bowl tickets this year it's one of the hardest to attend super bowls in history so okay so here's a conspiracy she just announced or i just saw today that disney plus is getting the exclusive rights to the eras tour oh wow so picture this the confetti is flying travis kelsey puts on his hat he gets down on one knee he looks he proposes they say where are you going going to Disneyland. Disneyland. Wow. The optics. Oh, the yeah, that's true. <laughs> Go buy your Disney stock now, everyone. That's a Uh-oh. insider tip <laughs> from the <laughs> Let's go back to episode 1 for our disclaimer. Uh, this is uh, Point Two Law Review brought to you by Anderson Klein Brewster and Brandt with offices in Minden, Holdridge, and Kearney. Hope you have a good week everybody. Enjoy the game. Thanks everybody.